I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, man of the question mark, bionic. I thought the Riddler would have been man of the question mark. Yeah, you know, I'm actually trying, I'm actually, some of the structures that I've been building lately remind me of the Adam West sort of. Well, that same kind of <laughs> angular structure <laughs> yeah. of the band hanging. Yeah, I used to live in a house like that. Yeah. yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another week of the Future Quake Show. Uh, we have a, another very interesting guest with us this week. It's going to uh, cause you to have a lot of thought-provoking thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have with us Dr. Joy Jeffries Pugh, who is the author of the book Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666. And we're going to be talking about historical evidence of incidents and stratagems in the ancient battle of good and evil. And this is a book that's been out for a little while, Tom, mm-hmm. but uh, evidently it's done extremely well. We'll quote some of the uh, response of it. Mm-hmm. Evidently it's, it's had a big impact in the field of prophecy. We've not covered it, but she contacted us. And said, hey, yeah. we, I listen to Future Quake a lot. How'd you like to talk about her book and, and review it? Well, and found out that it had been reviewed a lot. So we're going to have an interesting talk about it. Very interesting. And uh, we'll uh, have a lot of thought-provoking things for our Futurian listeners to yes, uh, sort of indeed. chew over. So indeed. with no further ado, here is Dr. Joy Jeffries Pugh, author of Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666. And we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, a big fan of at least what he thinks the Garden of Eden is, Bionic. (laughs) Well, your idealized view, hopefully. Idealized view of the Garden of Eden. I'm a big fan of it. The original condition, Garden. Uh, This week, we have a very interesting guest that is going to cover material that we know our Futurians are keenly interested in. Uh, This week, we have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Joy Pugh, who is the author of the book Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666. And we're going to be talking about historical evidence of incidents and stratagems in the ancient battle of good and evil. Hmm. And I just want to tell very you... Very light, Mary. Very light, yeah, typical Future Quake show. Dr. Pugh, I just want to tell you it is a pleasure to have you on the Future Quake radio show. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being your guest tonight. Well, I, I so appreciate you contacting us and making us aware of the... Uh, of, of your writings and your, and your book in this, and the, the subject matter is certainly something that is of keen interest to our listeners. Uh, if I could summarize, and this is going to be difficult, uh, your considerable resume, uh, let me point out some of your background and credentials. Uh, you're an alumnus of South Georgia College, Valdosta State College, and Nova University, where you received your doctorate in education. Uh, your secular background uh, involves working as a researcher, counselor, mental retardation professional, uh, human Services Director and Consultant. Uh, and then you have written three books and one abridged and updated audio edition. Uh, and these books include Antichrist, The Cloned Image of Jesus Christ, which was published in 1999, The Colors of Joy uh, in 1975, and the book we'll talk about today, Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666, back in December of 2006, as well as an audio version of that book, uh, which was released in January 2009. Now, your book, Antichrist, as I understand it, which is available for purchase at ArmageddonBooks.com, reached number one there and has continued in their top ten bestsellers from January 2008, I guess, until March of this year. 
I know you've appeared in the television series The Nostradamus Effect on the History Channel, which was a a very uh, prestigious opportunity, uh, in several episodes of the 12-part series that they they had on the History Channel. Uh, Your latest nonfiction book, Eden, uh, again, released in December 2006, is available in stores, uh, both retail and online in places like Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, Target.com, BooksAmillion.com, B. Dalton Bookstores, Lifeway Christian Bookstores, PowerProphecy.com, and again, ArmageddonBooks.com. So it's got a wide distribution. Uh, it's been in the top 50 bestsellers of prophecy books at Amazon.com since January 2008 and went to number one in the three bestseller categories of theology, eschatology, and prophecy uh, in February of last year. Uh, and is up at, I guess, a, a sales rank at number 200 at the time. Uh, and very right time eschatology at number 30 and prophecy at number 10. Uh, and I could go on and on with the statistics, but basically it's been a huge hit. Uh, the audio version, uh, again, was released last year as a 12-disc CD set. Uh, and as a digital download that you can get at iTunes, uh, even at your website, I believe. Now, That's on, right. on top of all that, and um, it was hard for me just to hit the high points there, uh, you appeared on the popular radio program Coast to Coast with George Norrie uh, on February 10th of last year as well. Now, uh, that sort of establishes with our listeners that your book and your writings have made a pretty huge impact out there uh, based upon their popularity. Given that they've obviously been so popular, uh, what inspired you to see the need to write the Eden book? Your, your, your first book that you did on the, on the Antichrist was a big hit. What, what told you you needed to write the second book? Well, introducing a lot of the information um, that I did in the Antichrist book, I had felt that it was very uh, new at the time. It was something that most people probably had not heard a lot about. And so I tried to be very, um, I guess, simple in the type of information that I was trying to give. And at the time, I would have a lot of people ask me, well, I would like to know a little bit more about uh, these particular uh, facets that seem to have been a part of history for a long time, and I continued to do research um, even after I had really completed the Antichrist book because I personally have always felt the need to to be able to answer questions for things that I came up with throughout my life uh, that I couldn't find answers for, and so as I began to continue that process of putting together more and more information, then I uh, sat down and put together this Eden book. It took seven years of my life, and I worked on it 24-7. Uh, my my family was going through some really sickness, and uh, while I looked after them, I would do the research, and at night while they slept, I did all the typing. So <laughs> that's why Eden is really cram-packed <laughs> mm-hmm. with all kinds of information because I wanted to be able to put in one book my as much information as I could. If most people are like I am, your days are so pushed that you don't have time to be going to this library and that library and searching here and searching there. You want to be able to pick up one book that will give you some information about each of these little topics and be able to put them in context so that you can understand timeline. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of things that are out there we typically do not know how to put it in a in a timeline, and especially if you don't do the research in the particular areas of prophecy and ancient history and 
in uh, biotechnology. I mean, I, I incorporate so much of these kind of things that if you don't understand there's been a process from really what started in the Garden of Eden that has moved its way through history up until the present day in which we live, if you can't tie that together, then fields of study are so separated. Even science and religion has been kept such, you know, such far apart that most people, if they either study the science or they, you know, they study the religion, but they don't mm-hmm. study both together. And so it was important to me for myself to be able to know truth. And I wanted to be able to put down in a process, in a timeline, something that would help me understand the significance of who I am, why I have a soul, why that soul has a purpose, and what eternity is all about, and how did it all get started. And so this is what led me to expand what I had really started researching to do the Antichrist book, because what I was continuing to find in doing end times prophetic research was there was always correlations and ties and links all the way back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Bible has told us, you know, Jesus even said, if you want to know the future, you've got to know the beginning. In other words, you've got to get the foundation stone laid correctly to be under, able to understand the process of how these things have happened through history so that when we get to the time in which I totally believe that we're living in, and that is in times, then you have a better understanding of why things are happening, how it's going to continue to magnify itself, and how it's going to prove that the Bible and everything that's there is true. Mm-hmm. And so that's what my research really has been about, is to prove that what the Bible has told us that it is absolutely going to come true. It is true. Mm-hmm. It was written for us to know. It was given to us. If we can, if we can understand simple things, the Bible's written for a child to understand. Mm-hmm. But then it's also got this compacted information for each thing that's there. That includes just words, because the words themselves. If, if you take and go back to the Hebraic translation or to the Greek translation, you will find that words have such meaning, and then they add to the context of maybe this sentence. And then that adds to the context of the chapters. And mm-hmm. I think if you are a person like I am that's learned and, and, and has spent years studying and doing research, I like to know the meat. And I think that's where... You know, the the Bible also tells us that some people have to be fed with the milk as baits. Mm-hmm. If you can go through your life and you can drink that milk and you can still see that Jesus is the sole reason that we have eternal life through his salvation and his, and his death on the cross, if you can live that in such a, a, mm-hmm. a state of mind and having worked with handicapped, mentally retarded individuals uh, for many, many years, they were able to grasp that concept and then nothing comes in. But for some people, once you have the knowledge, sometimes you can be led more astray by the more knowledge that you have. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, for people who seek meat like I have, you have to be real careful in staying on a, what I call a foundation of, mm-hmm. of what was established in the Garden of Eden and what was established by our, our you know, our biblical text. 
Well, we we have that cha- we have that challenge every week here because <laughs> it, this is a forum for people who want to chew on something, you know, a little deeper, <laughs> and we don't always achieve that. In fact, it probably is hit or miss about half and half, but that's our goal. And you, you, when you're out there on the frontiers, you have to really check your footing a lot of times, and uh, that's a challenge for all of us. And we just ask our listeners to pray for us and pray for each other uh, that you know we we all see through a mirror darkly. And as long as we keep coming back to Scripture, hopefully that will keep that footing, you know, firm that we have. Um, you're, one thing that you have like me is that you, your your education and your, your career weren't in the areas of theology. Uh, did you find it really interesting to, to why you decided to write on these kind of topics? They're, they're so deep and meaty theologically when, when, in fact, it wasn't something that was a educational or career focus for you? Well, I guess in a way, uh, from the time that I was a young girl, my total thought, if I could have chosen a career that I wanted, it would have been to be a pastor. I, I absolutely uh, had a strange dream when I was six years old that that I felt like that I saw what was end of time, the Battle of Armageddon had happened, wow. and that I had just seen what had happened. And it made me start asking questions at a very young age to Sunday school teachers to this day laugh and say, Joy, I don't know how you came up with those questions. We couldn't answer them. But I would just hear, you know, when I would ask these questions, these people would say, well, it's not time for it to be revealed to us or it's something we don't Mm -hmm. know. And that was very frustrating, Mike, to me because Mm -hmm. I had seen something as a child that nobody else seemed to have seen, and I felt that it was not just a dream, that there was something in that dream that I was to take with me for the rest of my life. And as I tried to find answers and there were none, then that made me very frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I saw how sometimes as a young person I would reach out trying to find answers and I would end up looking into areas that were very what I call new age. And, of course, when I was going through um, college, the big thing when I was studying psychology, and that was one of the things that, you know, I first studied law. I wanted to understand why law was the way it was, why we were affected by law, how law challenged us. Where mm-hmm. did the laws come from? Ten Commandments. I mean, it all. Right. even though I was studying these fields, I was still trying to understand the context of what we are here for. Mm-hmm. And I even studied health and physical education for the person, really the understanding of how does the body work? How does the mind work? How is the body as a whole as far as thinking and movement and functioning? How are we made? And then that led me into studying psychology because then I saw that even though we are physical and we follow directions and we have this context about us, there's a reason why we choose what we choose and how we choose to follow it. Mm-hmm. And um, the questions that I had were, how is it that you can have visions? How, you, how is it that you can have dreams? How is it that you can have experiences that seem very different than maybe your, your neighbor or your mm-hmm. mother or dad or whatever? What's really going on? And as I worked in my undergraduate degree for psychology, I had a wonderful, wonderful professor named Dr. Cole Pepper. And uh, I went to him and I told him I was going to do my master's thesis and, of course, um, it, it should have been in the field of, of psychology. And um, I went to him and I said, I, I have this thing that just hit me going to church one day that I should do something about the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end, the first and last. 
And he looked at me, and he was like, what? <laughs> and I said, I, I, I am being led to try to understand how the beginning has something to do with the end. And I said, I can only tell you that I'm driving along going to church, and I look over at a fence row, and I see a fence row, and it's like this thing comes to me, like a light comes on, that one side of the fence is different than the other side of the fence. One is the beginning, one is the end. And I'm like, I don't know. It just came to me. But I said, I really want to do this research. And he says, mm-hmm. Joy, as long as you have this hypothesis and you can essentially prove it with your research, then I'm going to let you do this. And you're the first yeah. student that I've ever allowed to do this. Wow. And, you know, Mike, I that would be, it began then. You know, I, I was like, mm-hmm. um, just early 20s, and I was like, I really want to know. And that began my research and trying to find out how is it that all these religions have this beginning, the end, floods. What is the core? Where, where, where does all this correlate, come mm-hmm. together at? Yeah. So that laid some foundation for me. And then after I graduated, of course, like, I, I got a great a from that Dr. Mm-hmm. Culpepper, but let me say, when I stood up to do that thesis in front of people who were doing like, you know, should you punish children? Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, sort of with an anomalous. or whatever, they were yeah. all sitting there with their mouths open. But the but the intent was that it was giving me a foundation because when I grew up as a Southern Baptist, I was taught that women just really didn't take the step to be pastors or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. I had to do my research outside, but used what what I was learning to come to grips as to how different fields of study all have interconnecting pieces to the puzzle. So it it really was the way that God was preparing me for what I'm having to do now to talk about this. Well, you, you know what and I find so, what I find interesting, Doctor Pugh, is that uh, some of the subject matter, like in our book, which we we probably need to move on to discuss here, is the kind of things that probably wouldn't have been welcome in a seminary anyway. Had you right. done sort of that classical career track, and that is a common theme with the guests on Future Quake and even the host here, is that um, in these days we we found a different track to be able to contribute to the dialogue of what's going on in matter spiritual rather than the classic one. And, but we live in the day with the Internet and with uh, all sorts of additional things that we can do to have an impact, self-publishing, those kind of things. And um, so we're finding a new generation of people that can have a contribution and have a say. And uh, it's just very interesting and refreshing, somebody like yourself from a different perspective that puts your perspective on the information and data and has a thirst for it and won't say no or won't accept no from anybody from uh, moving forward with your with your contribution is uh, – as you know, there are many, many prophecy-related books out there. Uh, many of them are covered here uh, that cover just about every aspect of the only the, good ones. <laughs> only the, good ones. Uh, the the topic of the end times, you know. And I know you've heard many of them here on the Future Quake, because I understand you're a regular listener here. Uh-huh. What are the subjects and the information you feel your book uniquely covers that you have not seen covered by other prophecy writers. That's always the challenge for a writer to sit down on a topic like this has been such fertile field for people, is to say, what what do I have new to say? And I don't want to get into real details, but, but the broad subject area is that you would hope to fill in a void uh, with this book. Well, the, the t- like I say, studying the prophetic aspects of what was going to happen in the future and what I had seen in this dream as a child, 
being able to put in place that information. Most people, if they're doing research, have not had something that they typically have seen and are looking to, to, to put the, the pieces of that puzzle together. But what I found was that it was true, that what the end is going to be was exactly what had happened in the Garden of Eden. And so I felt that in my research, something that's quite different from most people is people will typically pick one subject and, and stay with it. Uh, if they if they talk about fallen angels, they typically talk about mm-hmm. fallen angels. If they talk about the Garden of Eden, they typically just talk about the Garden of Eden. I think that my research is different in that I take you from one aspect of of our beginning and carry us carry you through a parallel history of good and evil that as it transcends through the ages up until today. So I'm incorporating a lot of the people who write those things that are just specifically, let's say, on Eden or specifically on the fallen angels or specifically, you know, on Jesus or on Gilgamesh or whatever. My intent was to highlight all those things because they're all important. Um, but they, I, I, what my research shows is that they tie together so that you can get a grasp of why it is so important that you make the right, right choices and why your soul is being sought by someone that we have called either Lucifer or the serpent mm-hmm. or the dragon, uh, that, that, that there is an entity that does exist that's trying to destroy your soul. Mm-hmm. And so it is in my hope through my research that I can show you this with all the aspects of all the disciplines and all the research that's been done by a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, out there. So I, I think there's, yeah. that's where mine is different, is that I, I'm, I'm naming names, I'm giving you information, yeah. I'm telling you how it's going to play out, and I'm, I'm giving you an in, uh, analysis of today as well as what's going to happen yeah. in our pretty near future. Yeah, I, I guess if, I, if my observation from, from what I saw is that uh, you cover a lot of information that could be basically put on a, a, a timeline that goes for millennia, but you try to find for every one of those pieces their roots in the garden and how the garden set the stage again for the game plan uh, that's been playing out since then. At least that's what I picked up for it. You know, since your book is so lengthy and densely packed, with interesting information to discuss. Um, we didn't feel like we could do justice to it by just briefly skimming over all the information in the 486 pages from the limited time of our show. So we were going to focus on the contents of the first third or so of the book, which I think has more than enough material for us to uh, to fill our discussion time today. And hopefully it's going to whet the appetite of our listeners to decide if they want to get the book uh, to, to glean more information out of it. And uh, hopefully the questions that we're going to ask you here are the kind that that our listeners would ask, you know, when they were reading the book themselves. Uh, given that, uh, you focus much of the early part of the book on the premise that Cain was indeed sired biologically by Satan himself, with Eve as his mother, and that the resultant effects of that incident, you know, that were on world history. Uh, I know that's a quite controversial position uh, within Christians. Uh, can you explain how you feel the Bible clearly shows this to be the case? <laughs> well, I think that that's probably one of the the biggest things that I was a revelation for me when I was when I was starting to do this research, uh, Mike, is that I had to come to terms that the Bible was telling me something that I had not really understood as a young person when 
I had heard the stories of Adam and Eve and supposedly um, a, a, a snake in the in the tree given Eve an apple. But, you know, when I went back and, and really tried to look at what was the Bible really saying to me, I felt like that, you know, there was a couple of things that I, I needed to, to get in my mind. And that was the fact that, um, that there was these two trees there. There was a tree of life and there was a tree of good and evil. And that for some reason, there was the reason that God had told Adam and Eve not to mess with that tree of good and evil. And then looking at the end of time in Revelation, I'd seen where when uh, everything is said and done, it appears that that tree of good and evil is no longer there. It's only the tree of life. And so the implant of the tree there was for a purpose that changed or did something to humanity that was really, really quite bad. And so when I look back at Genesis 2, I, I saw that, of course, Adam you know, has a rib that's taken from him and, and that Eve is brought into life and that God married them in Genesis and they became one flesh. And I think that was one thing that I had kind of not really paid attention to was the fact that God married them. And we know throughout the Bible, it's always talking about the words of adultery and harlot and, and whoredom and things of like, you know, that nature. And I, I look back at Revelation and I saw, you know, at the end of time, there's also the, the beast and, and the, um, the whore of Babylon and all the whoredom and the harlotry and all the mixing that's going on. And I, and all of a sudden I was like, you know, for some reason, God didn't just make Adam and Eve and say, well, you know, you're only two people out there. Of course, there's no problem in you all having sex. Just replenish the, the earth and let's go with it. But instead, it, it was it was that he married them. And so marriage becomes very important because we talk about the marriage supper of the lamb, the return, the reason the bride has to be totally pure at the end of time. And I'm like, okay, there's some reason that this this mixing and this importance of God yeah, uh, not to right. be caught up in adultery is important. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future and Tom, question mark, bionic. Mm-hmm. I know we spent a good t- bit of this first segment of the interview getting to know Dr. Pugh, uh, mm-hmm. particularly because we don't have a lot of female authors uh, no, prophecy true. material. True, we had uh, pretty rare. What, Paula Martin, right? Yeah. Paula Martin would be one. Uh, we also have a little information uh, from um, Sharon Gilbert. Oh, that's know, but correct. Just, yeah. but they're rare exceptions, mm-hmm. and she came from a very different background. So we spent a good bit of time uh, letting Dr. Pugh share with us a little bit about why she got into this field, but um, she started out with a very, before this segment ended, with a very provocative topic about the seed of Satan. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I I myself, I don't want to drag you into this, but I am uh, in, I won't say high disagreement about the seed of the serpent, Yeah, sort of theologically, well, a number of points. You could tell I had my issues too with it, Sure, and we had a upfront uh, issue talking about it, and I don't think all those questions were... Or completely anchored. resolved yeah. uh, in that. But uh, someone who can resolve things is Murph, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Wow, that Merv. He's always there. Maybe we, Boom! We mention a little bit more in the next segment. Yeah. Uh, come back for the next segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am, of course, am some guy named Tom Bionic. Did somebody wave a bar magnet over your head just then? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just you have a petite mall right there in the middle of recording. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back today for the uh, Future Quake Show. And this is the second installment of our interview with Dr. Joy Pugh, who is the author of the book, Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666. And we're talking about historical evidence of incidents and stratagems in the ancient battle of good and evil. And as we mentioned yesterday, and if you heard the show, this is a book that's been extremely popular. It is sold, uh, one of the top sellers in Prophecy on Amazon.com and a bunch of outlets. Uh, Ms. Pugh has been, uh, I guess, an expert resident that was on the History Channel, the Nostradamus Effect, mm, been on Coast to Coast with George Norrie. She gets around. Uh, and uh, she she contacted us to come on our show. She's a listener of our show, wow. and uh, had called and asked if we, would, if we would we would review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She had recognition in spite of that. Yeah. And, and she called to uh, see if we'd review her book. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's a fascinating read. But it was so dense, full of material that it really took me forever to get through it. it. Yeah. And we'll only cover a small portion of the book here. Mm-hmm. And there's it, it. You know, we're usually doing edgy topics. But this thing it's was so edgy, top, it's beyond the edge of edgy Yeah. Uh, in a lot of things. There's the line. There, one step over. And, and as you'll see, we had a lot of questions. Uh, yesterday, we had a lot of questions about mm-hmm. the whole thing with uh, Cain and the serpent mm-hmm. seed. And we're trying get some to more, some more sort of get that in line with what we see yeah. Scripture says. Uh, and that that is a theme that goes throughout our book in uh, mm-hmm. the, the uh, pre- preservation of that line. So mm. uh, we'll have some similar things to talk about in this next phase. So... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, hang tight, uh, listen to the show, grab your Bible, uh, review what we talk about along with it, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. How does that relate to, again, Satan's role in the siring process? Well, the the thing that would, was, I guess, the biggest thing that really stood out to me was that if there was something that had happened between, let's say, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, that there had to be something that was uh, a little more than maybe eating an apple. And when I looked at some of the words, I began to see that in the Bible, things of called like the word eating or whatever, it, it also meant sexual, you know, kind of context. And that worried me a little bit because I was like, okay, um, something's going on because when Adam and Eve, they they eat supposedly, of something from this tree, and they've been told not to even touch it. But when God shows up, instead of wiping their mouth, they're hiding their privates. And I'm like, why would they do that? Because they were naked to begin with, and now all of a sudden they they know that they're naked and something's wrong with that. So I'm like, okay, then this makes a little more sense that if they were involved in some kind of sexual act, 
then that would be the reason they would cover themselves. And then after I got on into Genesis, you know, it, it starts talking about then God shows up and he's starting to curse this, this serpent. And he's telling this serpent, I will put enmity, which is really hatred, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And I'm like, okay, if if there was a bite of an apple going on, then that doesn't make sense why God would then turn around and give a curse like this because, you know, God is a fair God. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we're told. So well, all of a sudden I, I, it would be like if thought, I ate it. Yeah, I always thought that he, he put a curse there because they went against God's express will not to eat of it and he had deceived the woman. I thought the deceiving of the woman was sufficient for the curse. Well, but it, it wouldn't be for like if 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 God is true for an eye for an eye, I would see your, your curse would be, well, you know, you didn't pay attention to me and you ate that apple and every time you eat apple, I'm going to make you deathly sick. That's a whole different ball game, and and then turn around and curse on the serpent about his seed and her seed, and um and and it's going to breed you know bruise the heel of Jesus, which we believe came. From Seth's lineage through Adam, I mean, there has to be something a lot worse. And if you look back at the commandments of God, you find that He's constantly saying, you know, do not have, do not do about, you know, adultery, do not do fornication. And the intent, I think, if we if we really pay attention to this, that when we get into the end times, after everything's said and done. People are no longer married. There's no longer sexual acts. There's no longer children. And so I think that for what happened to have happened, there had to have been something that involved adultery or a sexual act because from that point on, it seems like there's where the curse and the concern God has throughout the Bible. I mean, there's a constant thread of, you know, no fornication, no adulterous acts, no covetedness, uh, do not be lustful. I mean, it's a constant bombardment of sexual terms. And, um, and it's, it's throughout the Bible. I mean, it's like, it's like major throughout the Bible. And when it seemed that God's lineage, if they got out of uh, whack, you know, with the, the Israelites and they would, you know, get involved with the Canaanites, it, I mean, he would absolutely have fits and he actually would kill a, you know a bunch of his people according to the bible for their their involvement um he didn't want them having relationships with those other uh tribes in fact when he told uh Moses and them he wanted them to kill every man woman and child of those lineages and you would think well you know here's creator god who loves us telling somebody to do a terrible act but the intent was to get rid of those lineages that had that, what I believe, connection to Cain and 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 Eve that uh-huh. he was talking about regarding the curse there well, in, in well, Genesis. Well, you're certainly right that there's a long uh, record in the Old Testament about uh, warnings about uh, sexual misactivity. Not only even between humans, but even between animals and humans and things like this. Uh, you know, we look in Genesis 6, we, we, we see about these angels that came down and left their first estate. 
uh, at least at that stage, we know there were unlawful activities that were going on, you know, of a sexual nature, it, it appears from the text. But it's a pretty big leap to go all the way back to Satan and Cain, unless, is there anything more solid? See, the thing that I'm wondering is that if, if there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, if in fact they had both jointly conceived Cain, it seems like he would have been the seed of both. And I'm not quite sure how that would have fallen out. Well, when you look at the fact that he that God actually tells Eve that she, he is going to multiply her sorrow and her conception, if there had not been a sex act, then why was he talking about right then that he's going to multiply your sorrow and your conception? Apparently, he had had no problem with Adam and Eve having sex because he had married them, and he would never condemn Eve in childbearing if she had not done something sexually wrong. Again, the Mosaic Law would be an eye for an eye. So he he actually tells her, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So in other words, he didn't just say you're going to have one child, but you're going to end up having two. And then if you look at the fact that Adam was actually with her and he did not stop Eve and she was his flesh, he had given Adam really uh, control and the ability of to be over everything, and, and yet he had allowed his own flesh, which had been created from his rib, and they were one as his helpmate to sin, and he did not stop that, that act. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that in verse 20, after all this happens there in Genesis, that Adam actually calls his wife Eve because she was, if not is, she was the mother of all the living, every father's family. So I believe at that point she she actually was pregnant. And so if you look on in, and everybody always has a question about chapter 4, where it says that Adam knew his wife, I, I agree. He did know his wife. He did have a sexual act. And immediately, the fact that there is a break in there, and it says, and she conceived, there's no doubt in my mind that if she had a sexual act, and she had a sexual act with a serpent and turned around and had a sexual act with Adam, that she ate first with Satan, and then she Mm -hmm. ate with Adam. And I think the fact that there's a verse break in in, in there with a comma that does not need to be there, and the mm. fact that she says she bare Cain, and then, you know, in my concordance, the word Cain actually means acquired. And to me, that comma, I have gotten a man from the Lord, Adam, is not the Lord. But then it doesn't say she, you know, knew his, she knew Adam again, and that he, bear, you know, she bare again. It actually says Eve again bare. There's no mention of conceiving again. But yet... She has a son that she calls Abel, and Abel means breath. So the breath, which is actually a living soul like what God blew into Adam, so that can only mean that there was something unique about him that was more like Adam because of the breath first acquired. And so, you know, when I was trying to come to terms with this, the first thing I thought, well, you know, is it possible for a human being or woman to have a sexual act with two men and then end up having children, one right after the other, like twins almost, but by different fathers. 
So I did extensive research and found several doctors' mm. cases that were called they're called heteropaternal superimposition. Right. But now, Satan, Satan, is, Satan is not another man, though, right? I mean, one, you've got a mortal, and then you've got Satan on the other side, correct? Well, we, we know that we're going to have to call him a serpent because we're going to have to say that he was in some kind of image that was called serpent. But of course, the book of Revelation said he was a serpent. He was the devil. He was, you know, the old dragon, so we know that Satan was all those things. Oh, I don't mean that but he the, wasn't corporal or incarnate or anything like that. It's just that I don't understand how you would classify Cain then. Would he be a seed of the serpent or the seed of woman if one was the father and one was the mother in that case? Well, I fully believe that with Adam and Eve being considered one flesh with God, and that was the way they were created when you talk about the flesh or the seed of the woman, it would be incorporating the fact that she was the flesh of Adam. But the fact that the serpent was not, then the seed would be of of the serpent. Okay. Uh, is there, is Which there, we know that, you know, in the yeah. past, uh, on down into, in, into several of the books, especially when we look at Lot, uh, we know that these angels who walked upon the earth were considered in, in the form of men because yeah. uh, there in Sodom and Gomorrah, when those angels showed up, they were in the form of men, and the homosexual guys were trying to pick them up and have sex with them, and that's why Lot sent his daughters out to stop all that. So uh, but now, we know uh, that these angels or these spiritual beings can manifest themselves because the Bible tells us they can do that in the form of men. Is there a, Abraham had visits from angels that looked like yeah. men to tell about Sarah's pregnancy. Is there a Bible verse that mentions Cain being, or that Satan was, was uh, the serpent, was Cain's father? Um, in John uh, 8.44, it specifically says, to which I believe is a complete reference, it says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And that when he speaketh the lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And even... Um, so would you, you know, be even, saying that the, the Pharisees were biological sons of, of the serpent, of Satan as well? I would say that there had to be some connection to the Babylonians. And this is where the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes... Uh, scribes, when the uh, Israelites were taken into uh, bondage by the Canaanites and the Babylonians, uh, they were indoctrinated and they mixed. And there's, this is where it was very interesting to me to find uh, the question or question that I had was why God had called the Pharisees and the Sadducees the serpent. But the fact that the word or term Jew is not really the same thing as the Hebrew or the Israelite because prior to being captured... Let, let me just stop you here for just a second because I don't want us to get bogged down in this for a second because um, this will maybe save us a little bit more time to cover some other things. Um, one of your premises in your book is that this seed of the serpent is carried throughout history, Correct. 
and I know I know you and I both get down in the weeds of things when you and I get talking on this. But for the sake sure. of our listeners, it, that's that's one of your premises in the book. It goes from Cain. There is some means by which it survives the flood and carries on. So I, I guess for the sake of moving on our stories, because we, maybe we need to pick up on this another time. But 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 that's one of the premises, right? Is that this biological seed of the serpent and this royal line continues on, I guess, until today. Is that that's right? A basic uh-huh. premise of it. Okay. Um, you mentioned something else uh, about Satan, about the, these nine stones or jewels associated with Satan in the Bible. And how you see them as a type of, I guess, an ephod stone, like the ephod that the priest wore, uh, the Hebrew priest, and how he's missing three of them, and how this limits his ability to seek redemption from God because of this. Could you explain why Satan would have had these stones in a form of an ephod anyway, and why these three he's missing in particular are critical to redemption? Uh, based upon you know other passages in the Bible, and why is it important in establishing a royal bloodline? What what kind of biblical passages sort of establish that? Well, you know the the fact that um, the, the nine stones are mentioned uh, in, in the Bible, and the fact that the priest had twelve stones when they went in uh, on on the ephod into the the holy of holies and the ark and the ark of the covenant there. The fact that the, the priest had 12 and the fact that that 12 allowed them to have communication directly with with Jehovah, that I, I immediately was like, okay, if they had those stones, and I went back and looked to see, well, which stones was it that Satan also had? And it was interesting to me that we were still talking about some of the 12 stones. There weren't, they, in other words, they were not different in some aspect. So the fact that he was missing three of them, my context is not that it limits his ability to seek redemption because that has nothing to do with the stones. I, I personally believe that the, the stones, the fact that he's missing three of them, means that he was a created being. In other words, he didn't even have the the three stones that even the priest had to use to be able to converse with God, that there was three something missing. Now, whether we want to look at that as like we have, you know, DNA within us and if something is missing, then somebody else is not whatever, or if you look at someone who is mentally handicapped versus a normal individual, they don't have the necessary information in their brain to be able to comprehend or whatever. But the fact that Satan is only given nine stones which would be less than what the uh, even the the priest had tell should should point out to anyone that satan was a created being and god was not created so as the ability to um to be equal to god is impossible uh or he would have had more of the stones than what you know than what he had so my thing was uh, as far as redemption, Satan was created as a, you know, a spiritual being, as a, as an angel of light, and uh, he had the ability to look after all the other angels. Supposedly, he was the, the, the main angel that looked after all the other angels, or was a, a, you know, the head, head guy. But the fact that he rose above wanting to be more than what, what, what he thought he could be which he couldn't be because he only had the nine stones, that it, it makes you understand um, 
that a created being can never uh, outdo or be above an uncreated being. Okay. And well, I the thought... fact that those stones were like that they were, and the fact that God, you know, mentions or the, in the biblical text that they were covering him. You know, this this ties into what I believe is uh, like a entwinement or a covering or a, a stone capability that probably had some kind of grid-like covering of him. Uh, he goes on to talk about, you know, the heads, timbrance, and all these kind of horns and whistles or whatever mm-hmm. that would be something would be, vib- you know, a vibratory thing. So we're getting into, like, elements and capabilities of using and manipulating elements, but yet he doesn't have the ability to create. Well, it seems like my recollection in the book is that you compared it to the 12 stones of the 12 tribes, which I think was was rep- represented in the ephod that the priests wore with the 12 stones on there. And that my recollection is that you mentioned that those not having those impacted his ability to support a royal bloodline. And, and correct me if I'm wrong in that. And if so, do you have some scriptures or anything that explain how that impacts a royal bloodline or anything like that? Well, now, the royal bloodline it would be the bloodline of what I believe came from Seth's bloodline of which Jesus was born through. I don't think that Satan can ever create, as far as coming to an end of time thing, he cannot create, let's say, a being. Um, he has to manipulate the elements or manipulate what has to happen as far as end time. So as far as him setting up the capability of doing this, of producing a Jesus, he can't produce it. He can only manipulate what would be the, you know, the, the, the bloodline of Jesus. And that's what he's going to do as far as in time, in w- actually, in which we are living in. He's trying to manipulate those bloodlines by making them look like they're royal priesthoods, but yet they are really not. They're only a part of what he established hmm. through his, what I believe was his lineage, through time, and of course, that being with the hmm. uh, the Genesis situation, where the uh, sons of God came upon the daughters of men, and they produced the giants. You're talking about having a different change in the DNA. If Adam and Eve were created by God, they had the perfect DNA. There's no way that if they had sexual relationships with one another, that their children would end up with imperfect DNA. Something had to be embedded in that DNA to produce a giant. Many people have often right. wondered that it was Cain's lineage, you know, that was having sexual relationships right. with Seth's lineage. But that can't be the case because if it was, then there would be no chance of a defect in DNA to produce, let's say, a giant. Right. Well, I know I know that happens later on in the story, but I was just confused because I, I thought I had read that you had said that these missing stones impacted his plan on his own his own bloodline, his own uh, bloodline of the serpent, that he had it was establishing a royal bloodline uh, he's later. A, he's attempted to do that as what I call like a decoy, like a, a parallel history of what Jesus would, he, in other words, the 12 tribes, uh, which became 13 tribes uh, when Joseph passed, he emulates, or Satan emulates this with the 13 Illuminati Bloodlines that are considered the royal blue blood, uh, you know, lines that have come through history and that are actually present with us today. Uh-huh. But he's trying to 
he's trying to play the game of seeming as if he has a royal priesthood or a royal bloodline from which they can bring about an end-time Messiah. Okay. Well, let, let's move on. I know I've got a ton of questions here, and these are all sort of deep deep questions in themselves. But back to an issue about Cain, that's something you mentioned in the book. You had mentioned that his mark was an X on his on his head. And uh-huh. how... How do we know for sure that it was an X? Is there is it mentioned well, in Scripture what it is? It says that, that God placed a mark on him. And the reason that I feel that it became or was something like an X mark is because throughout the studying of um, the particular secret societies that I believe actually came from uh, the Canaanite lineage, there was indication that the, uh, what was called an X mark became the first coat of arms that represented the dragon kings. And, of course, the dragon kings were those that were really, they professed to be outside the will of God. And what they had capabilities of were like the megalithic builders. In other words, they seemed to have the capability of building cities and whatever. And we know that Cain's lineage was, you know, he immediately went out and he built a city. We don't see that in the Seth lineage. We see that only in Cain's lineage. And the fact that those dragon kings who ruled following the flood, using that X mark makes me tie back to the fact that why did anybody pick a mark to represent themselves? Seth's lineage never had anything like that. But yet you find with your coats of arms of that nature that as time goes through and moves on up through history, you keep seeing that same X mark and you and you understand that it's it's the mark of, of Satan or the serpent or serpentine knowledge or whatever. Okay, so that, it's not something directly from Scripture, though, that it has an X or anything in the Bible. It's, it's saying that what I'm trying to say is that because God marked Cain, he received a mark, and that ties all the way into Revelation where you have the mark of the beast. And you also have at the very end where Jesus or where God actually marks the foreheads of the 144,000 that there are significant reasons why the marks are placed and that they have significance. And that's where I'm trying to tie that back in my work to show that those first were considered a mark how it, in the beginning, also happens in the end, at the end of time, that that mark that was in Cain's lineage has followed itself right on through these secret societies up until today. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, huh? Bionic. Yeah, there's a lot of hus. I mean, even for guys like you and I who've read and seen it all. This is really... And there's a lot lot of... of Very unique information. Well, it's just so chock full on every page. Uh, There's... uh, a lot of stuff that you've seen from different places, not a lot of references. You can always find you have to really hunt down for references yeah. and things. But um, but we talked about in this last session about this whole thing with the stones that Satan had. Hmm. And I, I, I'm really that, – that's new information yeah. on me. I'm really going to have to yeah. do some homework on that. Well, I think – and I think Dr. Pugh would have to admit these things are speculation because they're not talked about in the Bible. And yeah. so, some of these things aren't even talked about in other texts. So – that's yeah. not to say it can't be. It's just that it's sort of speculation yeah. uh, on some of that. And the same thing with Cain's mark. You know? Yes. Yeah. I was very... Uh, uh, I just yeah. know I don't want it. 
But what I do want is Merv, who can come and tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we really got to go. All right, let's get out of here. Come back for the third installment tomorrow. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Hmm. Bionic. Yeah, hmm. That's one of the first. Is it hmm, dot, 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 bionic? It could be dot, 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 hmm. Dot, 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 bionic. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you. Yes. And uh, we're coming back with our third installment with our guest this week, Dr. Joy Pugh, who was the author of the book, Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil 666. And we're talking about historical evidence of incidents and stratagems in the ancient battle of good and evil. And this is a book that has been very popular for the last two years. And uh, Dr. Pugh, who listens to our show regularly, contacted us and asked if we'd review the book and talk about it here. She enjoys our show. And I uh, had a time going over it myself and had so much material that... We just kind of stuck to the first A whole lot more book the, than there is a show. Yeah. So we got through the first third or so, and it yeah. had a lot of questions, a lot of... Stuff that was a little different thinking than what we were used to. Yeah. And so that's what we've been talking about, and this next segment will be no exception. We we talked uh, a little bit about uh, Cain's mark and some things about the nature of Satan and what her thoughts were, why they were that way. And we're going to have a whole new set of things to talk about on that here. So Plenty of stuff to say. So let's go to our third segment with Dr. Pugh, and we'll be right back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. Well, let's let's switch gears again with some different players here. Uh, from your book, uh, you talk about Enoch quite a bit in your book, uh, and Enoch comes across as sort of a bad guy. Is is what I interpreted from from the book? Which one? Uh, well, that's Chapter. another question. That's another question. Can you clarify about why you see Enoch is being sort of a bad guy in uh, running? Well, when when I first started reading about Enoch, and I know that the Bible mentions you know Enoch, but uh, I had never really stopped to to really do the research on that until I sat down to do the lineages of um, Adam's son, Seth, and also Cain's lineage and found out that there were actually two sons through that lineage that were named Enoch. And, of course, we know that the one that's so spoken of and so highly venerated was the Enoch that walked with God and God took him. And that was of Seth's lineage that was, you know, just a couple before uh, before Noah arrived on the scene. So if you if you read the book of Enoch, you find that um, there is references, of course, you know, to the fallen angels and the agenda, but there's also references to a lot of science and astronomy and mixing and fallen angels and watchers and that kind of thing. That typically what I what I gather 
from Cain's lineage was what was going on. And so my question would have been, why would God allow Enoch to be, um, I guess, his inner go-between for the fallen angels? Because the fallen angels were asking for Enoch to pray them and to help them in some strange way, get God to, to not punish them. I have always felt like that a spiritual being, according to the Bible, that, you know, it says that we cannot, in the human flesh, cannot fight against these principalities in the spiritual realm, that we have to give ourselves to Christ to fight for us. So it didn't make sense to me why God would turn around and do something that he's telling us that we can't do, and yet those those fallen angels were wanting I mean, he was going to let Enoch be the intermediary or vice versa. That concerned me greatly. And the fact, too, was that the book of Enoch that we typically read today was actually in the possession of the Templar. And my question is, can we really be certain that what we're being told, that that is the book from the Enoch that walked with God, or is that really the Enoch that was of Cain's lineage. Now, now that's a reasonable question. Do we do we have a reliable book? Uh, there, there's two real questions. One is, is the original book true? And secondly, do we have a faithful version of it if it was? Um, one of the things in the book of Jude is that it actually makes a quotation from the book of Enoch. And that was always a feather in the cap of the book of Enoch is, why would the Bible, you know, if we presume it's an inerrant word of God, why would it quote from a book like this if it were not you know, true itself, and and it mentions that Enoch, I believe it says he was seventh from Adam. It, it, it's a way that sort of clearly clarifies it's the one who walked with God, I believe, and makes a quotation that he says as a, as a prophecy about Jesus' return that is taken out of the book of Enoch. So so that would lend one to believe that it was actually the one that was called up by God as the author of the book of Enoch, uh, at least the one that, that Jude was familiar with. Now, the... As far as old copies, as you well know, the the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls had a copy of the Book of Enoch. Um, a couple of them. Actually. There are parts. Yeah, there, there's there's one part of the church in Ethiopia that still venerated it from the beginning as part of Scripture, and then there were others. There was a debate, you know, and, and I'm sure you're aware of that. But um, it, it seems like to me that's the real question: is whether we have a faithful copy. But then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls version. So is that really the main reason that you have issue with Enoch? Is the fact that you're not really sure we've got the real story of Enoch, and as opposed to an occult story about him? Well, it, it does make you have to stop and, and worry because any of the esoteric writings that were from that area, uh, found, especially the, with the Essenes, it appeared to me that there was some rewriting that was going on, you know, in, in some of the research that I had done. So it, I find it, I just find it interesting that, uh, how the, the book kind of got to us and how it's kept secret and there's just, I, I don't know, I just have that, that little strange red flag that just goes up and I, I don't have a true feeling about if it's really all true as it's written. Well, that's or if you know, it was rewritten. and that's a fair question, and I think everybody should have sure uh, questions. It's not technically to, to try to be objective you know, on on it on you know unless you're Ethiopic or all of it or parts of it. Of course, there's there's different sections of it. Some sound mm-hmm. sound crazier than others. 
but as far as his uh, being a representative, and, and I don't denounce that you know that Jude does not reference because right. I believe you know it, there's several things that's referenced in the Bible of books you know. Uh, Jasser and some of the other ones, right. Dad, that we don't have copies right. of. Jubilees, but for yeah. somebody just to pop up, and especially yeah. when they have come through organizations like the Templar and been hidden away, I have a real question about why. Right, right. Well, it, it, to, to clarify a little bit further about his representation of these fallen creatures, if I remember the storyline, they pursued him to, to ask for his advocacy rather than God assigning him that job. And, and, and whether the story is true or not, the, the story goes that they asked him if he could intercede to God because right. they knew he was venerated as a great man. And God's quick response was no, <laughs> that they that, that they were beyond redemption based on what they did, which is consistent with the biblical record. In fact, they're right. uh, you know uh, in chains in Tartarus, as, as I understand it at the time. Um, you, you mentioned the, the Essenes um, as a separate group from that time, and you also have sort of a dim view of them as well. Um, we know that all the different groups at that time, the different Jewish sects, had their major issues, whether it's Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes. But but you spend a good bit of time really uh, sort of giving them a, a you know a, a negative view, uh, particularly because that would then show a reflection on maybe what they had in their caves there at, at Qumran. Uh, can you explain a little bit further on what you thought was necessarily the major problems were with the Essenes? Well, I think that they still, you know, were much more like the Pharisees and Sadducees than what what people want to believe. But at the same time, because they separated themselves out, and they kept themselves in a in a way that, to me, um, was much like a secret society would do away and hidden and in, in, in doing their own thing, that made me really question again some of the things that they had written appeared to be maybe rewritten, and it. It also was a real red flag that a lot of the things that came out of there was very esoteric. And then, that you know, that is the difference, especially when you try to see that there are parallel histories. The parallel history of Satan is not so much that it's totally opposite. It's that it's so much like it that you can't tell the truth from the lie. And I found it interesting that Judas Iscariot apparently may have been uh, a member of that group, and that he his intent was not that they did not know the Pharisees, Sadducees, or the Essenes that Jesus was not the Christ. The fact was that they expected their Christ to walk in and take over and make them the rulers of the world. And when Christ said, "Well, no, guys, that's not what I, you know, my Lord and my Father has been teaching all this time that this is what's going to happen." Then, you know, he didn't meet the standard of uh, fulfilling what I would say paradise on earth, and so it's like, okay, we don't need you. We're gonna we're gonna attempt to do this on our own in our own way. And mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like, of course, Jesus knew that that Judas was this way. I think that uh, no different than when God said to you know to Cain, uh, you know, about this redemption thing. He gives you a choice. God is always going to give someone a choice. And I think that Jesus knew from the get-go that when Judas came in as part of the disciples, that he was going to be the one to betray him. I don't think he was a surprise to Jesus. It was a planned thing. But it still gives you the understanding that, that, that our Creator gave not only the fallen angels and the angels an opportunity to be who they are, 
But he also gives humanity the same option. Mm-hmm. You know, you really want to follow me or you don't. But if you don't want to, then, of course, these things are going to happen and they're bad. But at the same time, it appeared that Judas, you know, does Jesus in. But in the end, what happens? Jesus resurrects. He does not have sin. And he gives us eternal life. Mm-hmm. So the game that Satan was playing against Jesus never worked. But, you know, from the course of the time of Adam and Eve, really Satan never wanted Jesus to ever be born because he wanted man to always be mm-hmm. in, a, in a sinful, fallen state. Mm-hmm. So his intent was to try to keep that from happening, which it didn't work. Well, Ken, Ken I, w- I want to ask you about something else totally different. Uh, and it's something I hadn't heard of before, and I just thought maybe you could elaborate on it a little bit. It was just mentioned sort of as an aside in the text. Can you explain what is the Masonic degree known as the Ark Mariners, what that is all about, and where did you find that information? Well, uh, there are several different uh, books that mention uh, the Ark Mariners. I, I think that, uh, just thinking back, probably the Hiram Key was probably one of the, the main okay. ones that i picked up and, and, and got some information probably first about that. But well, I didn't see a reference in the book, like a, so I thought I'd better ask in case somebody it, might ask it, that. It's a, it's a so-called type of uh, resurrection degree. And it seems that this all stems around, really, I think they called him Captain Noah or whatever. But the Masonic gr- degree has this, and it apparently is something written in regard to the secrets of him in which, you know, we know that recovering the secrets of the master that was lost by the flood, that supposedly there was a capability of bringing the ability to maybe resurrect or do something, and that's what that Art Mariners is about. But probably the Hiram Key book would probably be the quickest if somebody wanted to go, you know, and, and read a little bit more about that Art Mariners degree. Masonic degrees are all set up on um, biblical-based um, you know, words or histories or, you know, biblical names or whatever. And th- th- again, this is where I was talking about earlier that Satan never is going to appear as this little red being with a pitchfork. Mm-hmm. He's going to come looking just like and playing like he is a part of the religious system of Jesus. If you're not ground in this, it's very easy to be swayed. And I think a lot of people who get themselves caught up in secret societies go in thinking that it's based on, you know, a good deal of a religious understanding. And so Mm -hmm. they assume that that is a combination of just a continuation of what they religiously are are participating maybe in in the church. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that it's not. And that's where I encourage people, really read what these oaths are, these particular uh, if you're a man and you're involved in that, read exactly what it's telling you and then go back to the book and find that same story and make sure that it's not deviated in some little small faction right. because right. that's where Satan plays the game. Sure. Well, c- could you clarify, maybe I missed this, but exactly what was the Ark Mariner story that they were supposed to represent? It was involving what they called Captain Noah. I think it was Captain Noah and his uh-huh. sons. And the fact that Ham had this capability okay. of resurrecting someone. Okay. okay. And so that was... Kind of, and it really, it follows right into what a lot of the stuff in uh, Masonic literature is about. And that is 
the Hiram Abyss story mm-hmm. where somebody's raised from the dead uh, right. and, and supposedly has the knowledge uh, of building or whatever. It, when the flood happened, the knowledge that apparently the, the, the Canaanite or Cain's lineage had gathered from the fallen angels involved all these you know, magnificent sciences. And so building, we know that when you go to build something, you've got to know mathematics, you've got to know placement, you've got to have all these capabilities. You just can't, it's like a person that doesn't know that. If you told a kid, let's, you know, build a house, if he's never seen a house, and he has no understanding of, you know, two inches this way, three inches that way, and be able to put a top on this, he couldn't put it together. So knowledge like that was very important for somebody to get through the flood. And I think that those, the Art Mariner degree, and then your Harem of this degrees, all that, Kind of, they're similar. And Ham, in fact, all the little things like that are similar throughout the Masonic degrees. And and in their storyline, Ham plays a critical role at the critical stage of the flood in preserving that information and carrying it over to the post-Diluvian world. As I understand, and that's what a lot of your book talks about as well too. Uh, Regarding the Enochian language, we hear a lot about that in the occult world. Uh, uh, Enochian uh, magic came about in the language from Dr. John D. Uh, you know, we know that uh, uh, Alistair Crowley was very interested in it. Um, where did you find in the literature about Enochian language being called doublespeak? Where did that um, term come from? Well, the text Mars has written a lot of books, uh, and which he shows how these, um, how this kind of language has been used in as far as sounds and power, in other words, words. Numbers, symbols, sounds, they all have specific power. And what, what we may think, you know, blue, blue is blue to us, but to someone who understands the double speak, blue may be red to them. And I think the combination of understanding what Enochian language is all about allows someone to walk in a daily light around uninitiated individuals carry on a total conversation, whether it be on TV, computers, radio, whatever, about something. And unless you were initiated in the mm-hmm. form of Enochian language, you would have no idea. You would think okay. they were talking about something totally different. Huh. And I see that being used a lot when I did research into the Nostradamus quatrains. It seemed that there were uh, a mixture of uh, words that don't really make the sentences congruent. Uh, it seems un- they uh, disjointed. In other words, the quatrains seem disjointed and out of context. So if you knew that, let's say, uh, every time I say uh, red, I mean blue. If I every time I say ra- raven, I mean this. And if every time I say so and so, I mean that. Right. If you have the code of that, then you could put, you know, three comes before four. But mm-hmm. then 10 comes before sure, 2. Sure. You see what I'm saying? Once you understand the code and how that's done, then it would lay out perfectly. But right. if you were uninitiated into that, it's no different than you know, the research that I did in, in Da Vinci and his paintings. Mm-hmm. If you stand and look at Da Vinci's paintings, you'll say, oh, beautiful painting. But if you start doing a, a, a cross of your eyes, and you take and you do the mirror images, and you fold them like I and I show this on my website at www.drjoy.com. Mm-hmm. If you start looking at that and you know how to move or use the mirrors, you see evil, evil symbols staring back at you. 
Mm-hmm. And those particular symbols have very evil powers. That's why the occult is so into using evil symbols, paintings, and whatever. But as a, as a just a bypasser who looks at the Da Vinci painting or a Da Vinci sketch, you think, oh, well, he didn't know what he's doing, or either that was a pretty good painting or whatever. But you don't see the evil looking right back at you. And that's amazing to me that it's just right there in your face and you don't see it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the kind of Enochian language doublespeak that I'm speaking of okay. in my book. Okay. Uh, you mentioned about how the, the Freemasons believe that Ham recovered these pillars of knowledge and uh, at the time of the flood and was able to use this to reestablish this hidden ancient knowledge. Is that something you actually believe as well? Do you think that actually occurred? Well, there's, like again, if you look at what happened with Cain, Cain went out and his, you know, they built the cities and whatever, and they had the relationships apparently with the fallen angels who had accessibility to understanding this knowledge. Then the only way that Ham's uh, lineage, and we know from Nimrod right on down, those people were magnificent builders, megalithic builders. We're, talk, we're not talking about like mm-hmm. stacking these little stones on top of each other. We're talking about building the Tower of Babel and it upsetting God so much that then he dispersed everybody so they couldn't speak and keep going at what they were doing. So it it can only be that Ham's lineage had accessibility to that information that came from prior to the flood. Okay. Because okay. his lineage is the ones who built those megalithic buildings. Okay, so it, ha- it would have had to come in some kind of printed form where it was preserved, because I know some people believe that, you know, some of the Nephilim that were seen after the flood uh, actually assisted in that process based upon their inherent knowledge. And, and you think that what the Masons believe about this being some kind of written tablets or columns is an alternative explanation on how that knowledge was, was preserved? Well, the thing about it is in some of the uh, literature, in the Masonic literature, it makes you believe that these things were written on two pillars and that these two pillars apparently uh, were were built in order to to survive the flood. And looking at megalithic buildings, let's say, for example, the pyramids, they're built in such a, a way that they can withstand most any type of uh, destruction. I mean, even things from, you know, from uh, earthquakes to floods to sandstorms to whatever. So I think the intent... Uh, and what they were talking about is that something was definitely built in, in the hopes of surviving that flood. Um, I tend to think because of the Sumerian texts that talk about, um, you know, the flood and the deluge is what they call it, mm-hmm. that there was a a ship that supposedly uh, a king had put all the seeds on that ship along with his wife and they were like a biological entity of a ship set to sail in the event when the floods came. Um, and, of course, we know that with fallen angels and whatever, and when these things started, you know, when Noah started building an ark, they were probably like, okay, what's six in heaven? I mean, this man's walking with God, and he's out building an ark. There's something going to happen, which I think parallels today with what we are doing as far as putting seeds in the Antarctica, you know, thinking something's going to happen. So, I mean, I think that this was the same thing that's going on with uh, this particular situation that we're talking about now in history because Ron Wyatt, who was an archaeological um, excavator of many, many sites, uh, Mm -hmm. typically found that there was an ark or what appeared to be a petrified ark at the bottom of the base of Ariat 
And if that were the case, then, of course, anybody that would have been coming down the mountains from Ariat, and, and, and I truly believe that the original ark, Noah's ark, is on the, on the, in the mountains of mm-hmm. Ariat, just like the Bible says, um, uh-huh. and that when they came down the mountain, that if, in fact, this ark was there and was preserved, it, it apparently has some kind of metal, capable, um, metal structure, and looks, if you do it on a little computer analysis, it looks like an, more of an Arabian type, what I would say, ship, if the way that mm-hmm. they've got it fixed, you know, to look at. If those seats were there, and if those pillars were there, if that, of course, it sunk, it didn't survive it, it actually sunk, and, uh, and, and Ron White swore that there was a, a skeleton there that was the size of a giant. But the thing is, if that isn't, in fact, true, if that is the case, then if Ham was the weakest link and he had already reconnected to this thought process and, and linked to the fallen angels, then, of course, when he came down the mountain, the pillars would have been very important for him to have pursued because he, in fact, was the lineage and his lineages who went out and built the the cities of, of Babylon and what were really the evil, evil agenda that came after the flood. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom... Dot, dot, dot. Bionic. No, you, you're going to put hmm in there. I no, thought. dot, dot, dot comes on the end of hmm. You know, it's dot, dot, dot. Hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Bionic. Okay, okay, I think we're spending too much time on that. I'm the uh, the master of port clock management here. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was our our third segment, and we covered more material here. We actually were able to get into a few more topics in this, because mm-hmm. each one of these, you could have spoken for a show about each mm-hmm. one of these topics. Uh, we talked about Enoch, and I had never really thought, of, and I know the book of Enoch is a controversial book, Mm-hmm. But I never really thought about yeah, Enoch being a bad quite, guy. Quite that controversial, yeah. You, you know, the, the Masons sort of venerate Enoch. Yeah. But I don't necessarily blame Enoch for that. You it's know? not Enoch's fault. Yeah. I mean, he's they venerate just, some other people, too. He's busy but, walking with God right now, as far as I know. Yeah. 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 Of course, you know, some of the uh, New Age people believe he's Metatron or something like that. Yeah, well, that's... there's Who knows? Which... It should have been somebody should have fought Ultraman or Godzilla. I would Yeah, that, I thought that was like Astro Boy's... Yeah. Father or something. But uh, anyway, that was a very interesting talk about Enoch. And, yeah. Um, we got into the, bo- the book of Enoch, which is still an enigma yeah. uh, for us. I think it's, it's like a lot of things for Bible students that study, whether it's studying Dr. Pugh's book or the book of Enoch or whatever. Uh, you study it knowing it's always secondary to the Word of God, and, mm-hmm. and Dr. Pugh says that too herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look glad, at these I'm kind really of things. Glad she and you said that too. You, I mean, yeah, you got to keep it in perspective. In anything, yeah, whether yeah. it's her book or mm-hmm. anybody else's. Yeah, anything we say, obviously. Yeah. Uh, if you see the Word of God counters what we say, then, then turn us off. Yeah. Click. You know? But make sure it's what we say and not somebody else. Yeah, not what somebody else edits together. And, may, and maybe send us an email first and let us know <laughs> before you turn us off. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else about these topics that caught your ear? Well, we talked about ham a bunch, and since I'm a big fan of pork products in general, I was really intrigued by all of that. Yeah, about ham. Ham. Yeah, I don't know if that's what it really referred to. Maybe that's where the Pegasus Way. came from. <laughs> no, um... I, I wasn't familiar with the Enochian language being referred to as doublespeak. I no. I'd always thought it was a multi-dimensional mean? language where they actually wrote it in multiple like dimensions. Three-dimensional. Yeah. Three-dimensional. Yeah. yeah, and it could actually that was just a reflection of higher dimensions uh, right. itself too. Same thing with the Essenes. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew they're pretty strange, but 
But we're out, strange. we're out of time. Merv, right. would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's get out of here. Come back for the last segment with Dr. Pugh, and until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Very interesting segment so far. Bionic. We haven't even started it yet. No, interesting segments. Segments. So far. So the one through three. One through three. Okay, thanks and for very clarifying. Very interesting so far. Uh, do you have any kind of foreshadowing about number four, which is today? Uh, that's pretty good foreshadowing. Okay. Well, take that for what it is, ladies and gentlemen, because this is our last segment with our guest, uh, Dr. Joy Pugh, who is the author of the book Eden, the Knowledge of Good and Evil 666. And we have been talking about the historical evidence of incidents and stratagems in the ancient battle of good and evil. And uh, this is a book, as we've been saying this week, is very popular in sales. Uh, she has been able to be on Coast to Coast with George Norrie about it. Uh, as a Christian author, she was on the History Channel on the Nostradamus Effect, a big wow. series, multiple times, and has had a lot of big publicity about it. And uh, she had contacted us about reviewing her book, and mm-hmm. I reviewed it, and it had some very eyebrow-raising material. Yeah, very, that very I was um, tempting to digest a myself. Controversial and kind of new material. <laughs> yeah, and controversy is sort of how this show goes. But yep. uh, what I want to suggest to our listeners: if you decide to get the book, um, get it. Get you a Bible, compare it to what the Bible says, as she suggests you do and yep. we do, and you decide what you feel like fits with the Bible, and give us some feedback, too. Yeah. But until then, yeah, here's our last segment with Dr. Joy Pugh, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Well, I, I want to make sure I understand something here, because this was something that was probably one of the biggest eyebrow raisers I had when I read the book, and there were lots of those incidents when I read the book. I mean, it was a lot of surprising thoughts, but the idea of having two arcs, one that was the traditional one with Noah and the family in it, and if I understand you correctly, a second arc that that basically the, the bad guys had where they stored their stuff in and it survived. You know, there's been a lot of issues wondering how certain creatures survived on the other side, like the Nephilim and others, and people have speculated. But this was a new one on me, and I was wondering wh- where did this information about a second arc come from, and why do you think it's not mentioned in the Bible? Well, I just think that the information that I was able to gather was from Ron White's um, archaeological uh, excavations. Um, my question had always been, how was it that the information that God or the people that God had tried to, let's say, get rid of uh, in in the prior flood days and to bring Noah through there, why was the fact that when 
you know, Noah and his sons and their wives stepped off the earth, did we have any additional evil at that point? How, how, did, how did that continue? Because we look at the genetic capabilities of the giants still manifesting themselves because Moses, you know, encountered them when he and the Israelites were leaving from Egypt. So we know that that trait still exists. How did how did that happen? And and how did like you say certain bad things still manifest mm-hmm. themselves? That the fact that Ron White's research showed that this ark was there, which I don't think it survived the flood. Mm-hmm. I think it sunk. I don't think that you know the mm. the people that were there they were dead, okay. um, and apparently were buried there beside this particular ark that appeared to be giant. Mm-hmm. I, but, I but, truly believe. But that he was there the was author. Any, he was the author of a two ark theory. That there are actually yes. two two arcs yes. on the mount. Okay. All yes, right. and, and you can and you can go to his website and pull up and find out about the arc that was at the base of Ariat and how that uh, ties in a little bit with the stories yeah. that the Sumerians told in regard to the deluge. You know, because I mean, Noah is different than the guy that they're talking about. Now he still has a museum, isn't that correct? That even though he's deceased, he has a museum that's still open. Am I thinking of the right? Yes, and you can also Tennessee, like I, I say, go online and just just. Well, Ron White, yeah, you know, and he'll yeah. bring up all kinds of things in regard to him. But I just think it was interesting that mm-hmm. if if there were uh, people who wanted to try to do that, yeah. the fact that uh, that Noah had to work many, many days and hours and you know years to build something of the magnitude that he had to build in regard to the ark, that these people that were out there who were involved with the fallen angels had to have some knowledge that something was about to happen. No different than, again, this is a parallel, what I was saying earlier, to what we're seeing today. For some reason, everybody's feeling like we need to save the seeds. We need to do these kinds Mm -hmm. of things. But uh, I want to laugh and say, look at you you can already see what's going to happen with that because we've already seen what happened with the flood. That's not going to survive. We're not going to need that simply because when God comes back, it's a whole different ballgame. No different than after the flood, there was a whole different situation than mm-hmm. it was prior to the flood. But mm-hmm. it, it just it's kind of a parallel that stands sure. out in my mind. You know, another, and this was just a little small tidbit, that another thing, that it, you, you make me feel like when I read your book that I don't get out much because there's a lot of information <laughs> that I hadn't bumped into. And that with Ron White, you know, I was familiar with him in general, but I hadn't gone that deeply as information. I must look at it more. But but another issue that you mentioned was about the goat of Mendez, which is the, as you know, the inverted pe- uh, pentagram with the with the goat head in it. Uh, and you'd mentioned in there that, that it was said that, it was intended or created to honor Ham as some kind of ancient symbol. Does that ring a bell with you? And if so, do you know yes. where that came from? Well, a lot of the things like that that I was able to find were like within the teachings, the secret teachings of the Masonic Lodge and also some of the, uh, what they call the secret teachings of all the ages. And then I have, um, and I've had since I was a little girl, a whole encyclopedia set of man, myth, and magic that goes into details as to why a goat was involved first sheep. And we know that, you know, throughout the biblical history, we've heard God was going to separate the sheep from the goats. We've also heard that, you know, and there's been people that have emailed me forever saying, you know, Ham was considered cursed, and so he was a black man. 
you know, they've always been told that ham mm-hmm. was black and the black whatever. Yeah, but that was taught the days of slavery and during the civil rights thing. And that well, they, they try to connect all that and make it like that. But what it was talking about is in, if, you, if you go back and do a, re, a view, review of witchcraft and the worship of the goat, you find that it was of a man who would stand out and he was trying to be like God again and profess a whole different aspect. That tends to come back from a time of the Egyptians and back into the Babylonians in which that man was said to be blackened for its blackened magic, uh, Enochian magic. And the person that would have accessibility to that was actually Ham's lineage. And so that is why some of the witchcraft, whatever, will point their fingers back to Ham because when coming Mm. off the flood, if he had accessibility to the text that we were talking about, the pillars of those sciences which were um, alchemic and of what I call hidden science, uh, harmonic natures, to be able to resurrect uh, architecture that would vibrate and have Mm -hmm. a capability of affecting a human being, that information had to come from Ham's lineage to Mm. the flood. And that is why they were saying that, or in what I was looking at, that the goat was worshipped at Mendes in Egypt, but that it came from Ham's lineage because, of course, Ham's grandson became one of the pharaohs of Egypt. So it's all connected mm-hmm. together in that in that teaching. You see, I, it, just in my limited understanding, I had thought the first time that it had, had come out, that association with the name Go to Mendes was by Eliphaz, is it Eliphaz Levi, the magician from the 1800s. I thought he was the first one to actually. That was something <laughs> no, he was. No, 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 that goes way, way, way back. <laughs> well, because that's you know what in the what I read is he was known for that you know for introducing that uh, the the goat head inside the pentagram and that kind of thing like that too. So um, yes, regarding Ham, um, I think I understood you to say that you didn't believe that Ham was actual Noah's biological son in the book. No, what I, what I was saying is that according to the Masonic text, okay, that it appears that Ham, of course, was the was the weakest link, and and so I tried to show this in my work that you could see how the Masonic or the secret societies or the people who were worshiping Ham had a deviant. Uh, or either had something going on where they knew that Ham was that weakest link. And instead of just coming out and saying this, 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 and this, it appears that the Masonic books that I looked at were trying to make Ham be a Pharaoh's son. Now, I truly believe what the Bible says, that Ham was, in fact, the son of Noah. Okay. But I also have a question in my mind that he was not truly the full brother of Shem and Japheth, meaning that I think that Ham's mother was different than Shem and Japheth's mothers. Whoa. And that, 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 does that mean Noah would have had sexual relations with another woman? No. I, this could, it could be that... The thing about it is, first of all, biblically, the Bible is silent as to who uh, Noah's wives or wife ever was. Now, outside biblical texts, there has been indication that Noah married one of, uh, you know, one of the Canaanite women. And, you know, that, that again, that's outside biblical text. But the fact and the way that the Bible treats the way, he, it, I, it doesn't make sense to me 
some of the context and how the biblical scripture is written in regard to how Ham's lineage was set up. And because of that, I feel like that it talks about Jacob being the oldest and then Shem. You find that there's also differences in the way they keep up with the dates and who did what in regard to Ham, Shem, and Japheth's lineages. And I think that that is showing us that something or is making, I think that the Bible is telling us, but we're not really paying attention to it. We're not reading it like it is written. Because when Ham actually has this thing where he goes into Noah and he uncovers his nakedness, and then it has Shem and Japheth going back and, and walking backwards and recovering mm-hmm. Uh, their father's nakedness. There's something very strange to that because the nakedness in, in, in the Bible is also sexual. And in some of the Masonic literature, I found even notations that it could have been that Ham had had a sexual, homosexual relationship with his father. But then outside of some of the texts, in, in fact, in some of the Talmud, it shows that Ham had sex with his mother. And that that was the reason in the, that in the Canaan in the was cursed. Uh-huh. In the Talmud. And that was okay. the reason that Canaan was cursed. Well, this would make a little more sense and would be a parallel back to something like with Adam and Eve, with someone coming in in an adulterous situation and then the, the child, the first child being cursed like Cain was cursed, and now we've got Canaan cursed. So I think that if you really look closely at it, you can look at like Nimrod. And Nimrod, according to the, uh, the Babylonian text, says he married his mother. Okay, well, where did he get the idea that he could marry his mother? Well, if his daddy had done the same thing, it makes sense that that trend would have continued. Now, whether or not Ham's mother, who was married to Noah, was of the Canaan, Canaanite lineage or Cain's lineage, if, he, if it was in fact that way, then there was a mixed breed on the ark. Now, that made me question in the biblical text where it says that there were seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean. I thought it was strange that I had not paid attention when I was reading the Bible like I should have. I always thought there was two of each kind put on the ark and that was it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. There were mm-hmm. seven pairs of good and one pair of bad mm-hmm. or unclean. Are you comparing so that to the eight people on board, like seven and one? So well, eight yeah. People on Could board? that have been the same setup? Yeah, I mean, the Bible's quiet about it, but then no. the Bible also is true, and I think sometimes in translations from, you know, the Hebrew and the Greek to English language, there's been a lot of, and I don't know that it was done intentionally, Mike, but if you go back and you start looking at the words, you start finding, then, then it makes a little more sense. And then, of course, if you want to dig into some of these esoteric teachings and some of the outside texts of the Bible, then some of them are pretty clear that this is exactly what happened. You know, but you're, you're we raising, have to look at it. You're raising a bigger question that's a question that all of us who try to study these kind of things and really get into some of these deeper kind of things, a dilemma we run into. 
<clears throat> in that, you know, obviously you're conversant in the Bible. Uh, you read the Bible and know what it says. I know you're committed to it. Then you've got all these other texts that you read, ancient texts, ancient cultures and things. And then you've got groups like the Freemasons, like, like different kind of groups. And you know there's truth sprinkled in all of that. I mean, there are other factual historical information that is not just in the pages of the Bible. The Bible is only so big, it had a particular purpose. There's other historical information. We use Josephus. We use other things to round out. But then you run into this dilemma, and I'm sure you could probably agree with me on this. They have these alternative stories and versions of what happened. And some of it may be true, and some of it may be just to serve their agenda. And, boy, it is sure hard to sort out some of this information beyond where the Bible doesn't choose to amplify. You know what I mean? Oh, I listen. And that's one reason that I encourage people before they ever start digging in these other areas or reading these other books or even read my book. Read the Bible first. Get that foundation because if you ever get into somebody's teaching or work that's not based biblically, is not searching biblically, you can be off and down a rabbit hole and you be sucked down it so fast you won't know what happened to you. Best thing I've heard all um, day. <laughs> and you, and you, know so I, I, yeah, you know how seductive that can be. I mean, that's all of us who care to understand oh, yeah. things at a deep level. And, and you know that there's extra information, background information, that's cold from all these other sources. But, but trying to pan it and, and sift it out and find out what's truth and what's either poppycock or has an agenda to distract us, you know, or divert us is really difficult. And you have so much information in here, it really amplifies a problem that, that many of us who study in this field have is trying to sort out what really happened. And I think that if we don't try to, then these other groups are going to take and, and be seductive to so many people, it's going to cost them their souls. The main thing, you know, even in my work, I, I try to always end that you need to really get the foundation of what the Bible is telling you. Uh, and if you're going to step out into these other realms, you need to really pray. You need to put on the form of God. You need to, you know, really brace yourself for some of the things that you're going to hear. But if you have a question, always go back to the Bible and really, really look at what is there. I think sometimes we've listened to stories and we've been brought up under such, such discipline and doctrine that we've been forced to believe a certain certain way, and sometimes that can be very confusing. And I tend to deal with people who have left the church because they couldn't find answers, and these right. other people seem to have them. So my, my whole thing is to try to bring you back and show you the Bible has said these things all the time, but look at the biblical aspect of it. If something's trying to pull your soul away from God and away from worshiping Jesus as, as Christ, uh, and, and the fact that the cross at Calvary was our salvation, then you need to let go of those other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a decision everybody has to make. And, in fact, some even some of the best contributors in our field in some of these topics, uh, for one reason or another, the Lord leads them to that step, to step back for a while, where they get yes. so deep in, in, the, in the woods that they have to sort of step back and get back to, to first principles, you know. I guess it's sort of like the church, you know, in Revelation that, that warns the people you've lost your first love. There comes mm-hmm. a time where we have to be able to back ourselves, follow our steps back out of the cave and say, okay, let's get on our right footings where things are because it is a very challenging task. And we live in an age of deception. And right. the more information we seek, the more challenge we have to actually fake ourselves out. And that's true for every <laughs> one of us. I know here on this show, you know, we have one topic after another here 
where it presents yet another opportunity for us to do that. And uh, I, I'm really glad, and I appreciate you saying for our listeners, uh, and a lot of our listeners that kind of have a propensity of a fascination of these topics, and, you know, even the limited information that we were going to cover here today, I've only gotten through about half of it or maybe a little less than half of it uh, in the information because it just, it's such a deep path to be able to understand. And what I'm trying to do myself is discipline myself to separate what I know for sure from God's Word, and even then be open to a fresh perspective on God's Word and what we don't know for sure, but what we hypothesize or speculate on it, because that's about the best we can do with some of these kind of pieces of information. Uh, I know I've certainly changed my opinion on some of these topics that you and I have talked about here just since we've been doing the Future Quake show. And we've just started, what, our sixth year now? Mm-hmm. And we've actually had some changes in some of our views of these things, too. And I, I'm assuming that process is not over, but... Hopefully it's drawn us closer to the to the Word of God. Um, there's a number of other topics you talk about. If you could comment just real quick before we do a wrap-up here about Melchizedek. That was another one that had me scratching my head because I always thought he was a good guy in the Bible. Yeah, doesn't Hebrews mention him as uh, pretty, pretty good? Yeah, but, but, but I think you have an opinion that, that he may have another side to himself. Well, it just seems to me that from the text of Melchizedek, that he, of course, had no father, no mother. He was, you know, that that he had to be like an angel. And you find that when the people were rulers in the in the first ages there, that it seems that there was the connection with the fallen angels. And the fact that Abraham, if you go back and read the text, when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, his name was Abram. That was before he became Abraham. So his giving to Melchizedek is no different than us giving to, you know, whoever would be the ruler at the time, you know, 10% of, of whatever. And that fact that he gave the spoils was required. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in the Bible it talks about, you know, uh, I think the scribes and Pharisees hit Jesus with, you know, what you give or whatever. And he says you give to Caesar what is due Caesar or whatever. That's the same thing that I believe that was happening with Abram. And if we notice, it was before he was changed to Abraham uh, that he was dealing with Melchizedek. The other thing is, is the fact that when King David became king, that order was taken out. Now, if that was the perfect order, why would you remove Melchizedek and put in the lineage of the the Levites and, uh, and the priest that David had? And then why was it necessary to then move them out of the way and put back Jesus? Now, what Jesus was, was that he was, in fact, like Melchizedek, in that he has really, he had no beginning, no end, even though he was born and went through uh, the trial of being human and actually dying and then resurrecting eternal life, that we would never have to have another priest, priest king, or whatever. But I think it's a relationship showing that there was a spiritual being that people were paying homage to there in the beginning, and that it was replaced by the reason that that was not the correct way, or if it had it been, then, of course, King David would have never replaced it. See, all I've ever heard was that Jesus was, his priesthood from the book of Hebrews was of the priesthood of Melchizedek. In other words, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus' priesthood. In other words, there was a a positive association in the passage. That's the first time I've ever heard a, a negative connotation of Melchizedek. I just find it it's very interesting that that it was all before Abraham became or Abram became Abraham, 
and mm-hmm. that it was in the I think it was in the context of the other because if it hadn't mm-hmm. been like it was, there was no need to take something that was spiritual and replace it with human priest, which you know the reason we had Jesus mm-hmm. replace it was because those priests could not stay pure. I mean, all the sacrifices in the world for the people, and they still weren't pure. Yeah. So if Melchizedek was so perfectly pure, why do we, why do we take it and lose it, uh-huh. and replace it, and then turn around and replace it again? There's, I mean, yeah. it, it, that w- that does not make sense to me. Well, Doctor Pugh, you better watch what you say about him because he, if he does have no end, then he might be listening to the show here. <laughs> yeah. So listen, all the fallen angels <laughs> have. No, no end except when it's finally said and done and they're thrown in that final abyss. Yeah, right. Well, I tell you what, we've come up to the end of our show time here. And this was a scratching the surface of the surface. Uh, we're so little <laughs> oh, of the it. material in here, that, but I think it's given our listeners a taste uh, for them to decide if they might want to look into this further in the book. Obviously, it's been an extremely popular book. Um so it's it's been one of the best-selling books in prophecy, I guess, for the last couple of years, huh? Well, the the main thing is, if anybody has any questions from our mm-hmm. shows, yeah. then they can call, you know, email me. Go to www.drjoy. That's d r j o y e dot com. You okay. can go where it says contact me, and my email address is there, and you can send me an email for a question. I'll be glad to answer. Sometimes I get a thousand in a day, but I do try to finally get back to everybody's questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's important for me to be able to answer, you know, questions that people might have because I do want them to see truth sure. and, and not be messed up by this new age stuff. Because, Mike, as we get closer and closer to the end of time, the Bible tells us you can't tell the truth from the lie, and we're getting there yeah. really quick. Well, that's one thing we understand here. Now, you've got a musical album coming out, too? Yes, it uh, was released really starting today, and uh, you can go to my website. You can listen to some of the selections, and uh, all the, also the links to be able to uh, to buy it and that kind of thing will be available there, too, as well. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, be looking forward to hearing to see if you've got another book coming out, if you've got one in your hip pocket in the future. Uh, I've got so much information now. I just, I just need a secretary to sit down that I can just say, do this, do this, and write yeah. it down for well, this me might, real quick. This might take you another seven years after that last it, one. Listen, it, it probably would, and I don't know that we've got seven years yeah, before we've right. got to be looking at some really situations on this earth. Well, I warn the listeners, it takes seven years to read, much less prepare for that <laughs> book, because it's a, it's a densely packed book. So, Dr. Pugh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate mm-hmm. it very much. Yeah. Well, it was so nice being on, on your show, and I just ask that God would continue to bless you in what you're trying to do, and that is bring truth to this world. Well, thank you for so much for your support, and uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom. Hmm. Yeah. Bionic. Well, that was a very interesting interview. And I wanted to ask you some more things, but I really need to introduce uh, her music. She has an yeah, album she's got coming some out. Tunes coming out, right? Uh, called uh, this is a new album called Alive Again. Uh, excuse me, the song is called Alive Again, and it's before from an album called Before Time Stops. And here's a little segment of the song Alive Again as we uh, close our show. Uh, check out the uh, segment of Dr. Joyce Pugh.
Okay. Mm. That was it. That was it. And we now we need to bring in Merv to tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's get out of here. Come back for tomorrow's Tremors tomorrow. Yeah. We'll have a great new guest next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. News time, Revelation 18. Let's kick the beast in the teeth, Bionic. Okay. In yeah, a that's spiritual, a that, spiritual sense. That'd be a nice name for the show. Uh, it's also known here on Fridays as Tomorrow's Tremors or Today's Review, review of the Future's, of the Future's News. You interrupted me. Or Today's Review of the Future's News. That's what I said. Uh, no, you were. <laughs> I think that's it. I think I quoted you precisely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you Friday. Sorry about our uh, turmoil and dispute here. Yeah. We generally are of one accord, except yeah, when it comes to introducing Friday. And stuff. <laughs> uh, introducing Friday's show. It's a it's, uh, great time to review some of the news and things that are coming up. Indeed. Things get more and more challenging mm-hmm. as we go. Yep. Um, do you have any news from this week before we jump into the news stories? Well, there was just lots of great times had and mm-hmm. all that. and. Yeah. Anything, anything in Tom Bionic's life going on? Well, there's always many, many things, but nothing that I can reveal on air. Nothing on the air currently. Be. Okay. Um, Why well, is there something going on no. in your life that we need to know about? No. You sure? I would not tell if it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's fair. No, I'm teasing. Everything's fine. The Lord's okay. blessing. Just, just wonderful and good to be with my Futurian family here. Would you like to start us with a story? Okay. Uh, well. Let me ask you, what do you... Do you oh, here we go again. I have to do the Do you want to hear about the F's, how the FDA is suppressing imaging safety concerns? Who is? The FDA. FDA, okay. Or how Canada's only bullion bank gold vault is practically empty. Okay. Or uh, Ashtabula County, the judge... Ashtabula? Ashtabula, yeah. Okay. Is the judge is telling residents to arm themselves because they basically don't have a police force. Okay. Uh, and the hostages... Hostages say Chiquita... Banana, Chiquita uh-huh. Banana, Chiquita uh, yeah, right. funded death squads. Okay. And then and then Homeland Security wants cell phones to sniff for bioagents. You know, let's go with the banana one. I thought that was the... It's hard because there's nothing that super stands out, although they're all sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know? We haven't had a banana store in a good while, so yeah. yeah. yeah well, they get their name Banana Republic for a reason. Right. Uh, hostages say Chiquita funded death squads. This is via Courthouse News Service. Okay. Um, three U.S. citizens were held hostage by a Colombian death squad for five years, and one was murdered, so, while Chiquita Brands International gave the terrorist weapons and millions of dollars in quote-unquote protection payments, the former hostages and their families claim in a Tampa federal court. Former hostages of the, for- Forza's Arma- the, the FARC, 
I can't remember. It's Revolucionaries de Colombia. Forzares Armadas Revolucionaries de Colombia. I liked your attempt at an accent along with it. That yes. made it better. Yes. Or FARC. Okay. Uh, say Chiquita owes them treble damages under the U.S. Anti-Terrorism Act because the New Jersey-based company paid FARC up to $200,000 a year for 10 years. Hmm. Um, in a March 2007 plea agreement, Chiquita admitted it paid $25 million and funded uh, AUC, a right-wing anti-labor death squad, and other terrorist groups, according to the eight plaintiffs' 82-page complaint. FARC and the AUC... Uh, fought for control of land and lucrative cocaine crops for years through open war, death squads, and terror. Uh, uh, in 2003, the, uh, the FARC shot down a plan carrying Keith Stanel, Mark Casalves, Thomas Howes, and Thomas Janus, who conducted a civilian, who were conducting a civilian counter-narcotics surveillance mission for their employment, Northrop Grumming. Hmm. Also interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the plane's five passengers were survived, all survived the crash, but FARC members shot to death the U.S. US citizen pilot Janus and the Colombian hostage nation rider, host nation rider rather, uh, Sergeant Luis Alcide Cruz, within minutes of taking the group hostage, according to the complaint. The three hostages said they were held for uh, 1,900 days and until they were rescued. Anyways, FARC supports its operations through kidnappings, extortion, drug trafficking, and war taxes it collects from residents, businesses, and landowners. Chiquita made its first guerrilla payment of 10000 in Chiquita in 89 when the banana giant opened its Banadex export sub- subsidiary in Colombia. Um, anyway, it goes on and on. And kind, of the, kind of the interesting thing is that they were paying FARC and saying, look, leave us alone and go get these other people who won't play ball with us. So it became... Sort of so they're an extension of the drug cartel. Yes, yeah. Uh, it might be good to have somebody on at some point to talk about how uh, one of the former heads of the New York Stock Exchange got uh, FARC to invest, uh, you know, about $80 million in the New York Stock Exchange. Hmm. Who was that? He was the, he was the, the bald, I remember the sh- you hearing shaven it. head guy. I can't remember his name. Were you telling about that? Yeah. So we have a war on drugs where we're spending all this money to battle these guys and what's going on. We actually have military members down there helping mm-hmm. the government. We've even got and Northrop Grumman doing private contracting stuff, yeah. as the last story states. But then we have people who are selling this stuff in a grocery store who actually, part of the money we're using to buy this food goes to help the drug people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the FARC. And there's no laws or anything broken that you can tell? Oh, there's tons of laws broken, but nobody seems willing to or able to enforce them. So it's a big banana against the government officials? Yeah, it's a big thousand-foot banana comes right down on it. You know, like Big Pharma, you know? Yeah. So they're... Yeah, well, and I mean, they've had history. Everybody looks the other way. Oh, I know. They've had history of that. Well, yeah, back in the imperialistic days and the dawn of the 20th century where you said the banana republics were... Mm -hmm. Uh, was the United Fruit Company mm-hmm. would go yes. in, and they just grew one kind of banana, one specific thing that they thought was the best selling. Mm-hmm. But because they only grew one version, it would it would fall prey to yeah. disease and things like yeah. that. Got, so then they had to go conquer fight. another country. Yep. Be, because of that, because they yeah. wanted a banana to look a certain way. Until they yeah, until they ran out of bananas, that one specific type of banana they ran out of it. So every all the banana trees had that. Like banana funk, right? And um, then they got so then they got another banana, and it worked. They did the same thing for 20 years, and then it the same thing happened. So Hmm. 
people are saying by 2050 we won't have bananas in the in the supermarket anymore. Well, that would be a dream come true for me. I know because you hate bananas. I hate bananas. They are they've come from the abyss. I think just the smell <laughs> of them. It's like kryptonite. I can just drop to the floor when I smell a banana. So hmm. well, that was a very appealing story. I, there you that go. That was very interesting. I'm here for you. Sorry. Well, would you like a uh, story for me? It's a little different. Changing, cleansing of the palate. Yeah, the banana right. story. Uh, Ahmadinejad, you know our man in Iran, mm-hmm. urges a uh, uh, the UN to probe the 9/11 attacks. Iran's President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has written to UN Chief Ban Ki Moon, asking him to launch an investigation into the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. News reports said on Monday. The minimum expectation from Your Excellency is to set up an independent and trusted fact-finding group to comprehensively investigate the real factors behind September 11, Ahmadinejad said in the text of a letter carried by official news agencies. They did not say when the letter was sent. The hardliner, who in March, of course, they're, you know, they're defining him now, who in March dismissed 9-11 as a, quote, big lie, said in the letter that the attacks, quote, were the main pretext for attacks, unquote, by NATO uh, on Afghanistan and Iraq. Several times Ahmadinejad has questioned the accepted version of the al-Qaeda strikes on New York and Washington, which killed nearly 3,000 people. Turns out he's a big Jason Burmis fan. I don't know. I don't know. In January, he branded September 11th, quote, a suspicious affair uh, similar to the Holocaust in which he dismissed as a, quote, myth in 2005 during widespread condemnation. Ahmadinejad's latest remarks come with Iran locked in a standoff with world powers led by the United States over Tehran's controversial nuclear program and risking tougher sanctions over its defiance. In his letter, he also asked Ban to condemn Sunni militant uh, Abdul Malik Rigi and those who backed him, uh, Rigi or Rigi, head of the rebel Jandala Soldiers of God group, was captured by Iranian intelligence agents in February. According to officials in Iran, he had lived in Pakistan from where he launched attacks inside the Islamic Republic. Based on the legal and humane duties of the Secretary Duty, General, we want outright condemnation of Rigi's crimes in defense of the Iranian nation's rights as a victim of terrorism, Ahmadinejad's letter said. He demanded, quote, condemnation of NATO uh, backing, for this regional terrorist and impeachment of the criminals who backed him. So he's saying that NATO has been backing this terrorist. Iran touted Rigi's arrest as a major success and a blow to the United States and Britain. And state television showed uh, what it said was Rigi confessing that he had received U.S. backing. Uh, Rigi reportedly spearheaded several bloody insurgent attacks in southeast Iran's Sistan-Bakulistan province, which borders both Pakistan and Afghanistan. Pakulistan, huh? Yeah, that too, yeah. Um, so, um, gets a little foggy here when we've, we're supporting terrorists that are attacking another official state. Hmm. But yet he's our guy, so he's a good guy. And the guy who was lawfully elected is the bad guy. Yeah, well, I mean, who knows if he's lawfully elected or not. I just don't know what to believe. Ahmadinejad? Yeah. Yeah. Because he was like the mayor of Tehran, which is a pretty inconsequential position and then all of a sudden like you know he's in other words he wasn't really groomed for the president like being a community organizer oh i'm not let's not get into lawfulness of elections i still haven't seen a birth certificate 
Yeah. But well, I, I'm just saying it's very frustrating when a guy like this says something that a large percentage of the American public agrees with him, mm-hmm. but they have it come from this guy and report it to try to disparage questions about. Oh sure, one. yeah. I was going to say the one really sad part about all this is like exactly what you said. You know, there seems to be legitimate researchers on mm-hmm. the uh, uh, conspiratronics side of the 9/11 thing, and and we're going to hear from him next week. Oh yeah, that's right. I mm-hmm. forgot. That'll be right. interesting. Right now, it won't be Ahmadinejad. He won't be on. Oh, I thought that's Although he'd saying. be an interesting guest. Well, then why was he talking to me this afternoon on the phone? Uh, well, did you all hear that, uh, officials? <laughs> now they're going to run the barricade to the door here. Yeah, they well, haul you off. Great. At least he, I'll get to the. He'll be gone soon. I'll have I'll have my choice of bunks in the FEMA camp. They're they're uh, probably going to stage some kind of nuke event here in the U.S. as a pretext to go get yes. him. Yes. Yeah. No, that's actually that's actually uh, very interesting. I I am wondering the same thing. Mm-hmm. You heard it here fo- first here, folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they'll lock us up first. Yeah, well, that's okay. fine. You get your choice of bunk in the concentration camp. Yeah, it'd be like uh, like uh, the Skipper and uh, Gilligan, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's uh, my time, huh? Yes. All right. Unless you want to, you know, pass. Mm-hmm. Know pass what, what's the next one you got? I've got one about... Uh, uh, I've also got another Ahmadinejad about Tehran. People fleeing, five million people fleeing Tehran. No, we've heard enough about Ahmadinejad for one day. You don't want to hear that? It's a big deal. Okay. Well, Have you heard about that in the news today? Five million that's people? Breaking. Yeah. No, I haven't. So it's like five million, that's no big deal for you, huh? I have that many phone, make that many phone calls in a uh-huh. morning. Yeah, you sound like Mussolini. He says, yeah, what is one lot human life in the affairs of the state? With yeah. you, it's five million. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if it okay. gets me in there on the like the authentic Italian food, I mean, anything. Give possible. us a story. Okay. Uh, FDA suppressed image safety concerns. A former Food and Drug Administration scientist said Tuesday his job was eliminated after he raised concerns about the risk of radiation exposure from high-grade ga- high medical scanning. Okay. Sweet. Awesome. Hmm. Wow, this stuff turned my, my, my face green. Should I be mm-hmm. worried? No, don't worry. Dr. Julian Nicholas told an audience of imaging specialists that he and other FDA staffers were pressured to change their scientific opinion by managers in the agency's medical device division. Nicholas, now a physician at the Scripps Clinic in San Diego, very, you know, prestigious mm-hmm. clinic, said he and eight other staffers raised their concerns with the division's top director, Dr. Jeffrey Shuren, last September. Scientific and regulatory review process for medical devices was being distorted by managers who were not following the laws, Nicholas said. A month later, Nicholas's position was terminated, he said. The allegations about suppression of scientific dissent within the FDA are not the first and come at an inopportune time for the agency. No kidding. Tuesday's meeting was designated to kick off FDA's campaign to reduce radiation exposure for medical scanning. Huh. The agency is seeking input from physicians and manufacturers on additional safety controls and training to improve CT scanners and other medical imaging devices. Hundreds of studies have linked certain types of radiation, including the the type used in medical imaging, to cancer that can surface decades later. The FDA medical reviewer, Dr. Robert Smith, a colleague of Nicholas who also presented at Tuesday's public meeting, said he had hoped the FDA would learn a lesson from Nicholas' testimony. Science must not be ignored, suppressed, or distorted as that endangers the public, Smith told the audience. There you go. So even the FDA medical reviewer seems to be mm-hmm. siding with Dr. Nicholas's testimony that mm-hmm. uh, 
he said, look, you're not following the laws. And they said, oh, really? You're fired. So we would have less exposure if we had less tests, right? Yes. That should be accomplished with Obamacare, shouldn't it? Shouldn't a lot of that stuff be thrown out because of cost anyway? It's interesting. Maybe. Like you'll have to wait 10 years to and get I, an x-ray or something. A couple of people have have sent me a uh, a little thing where they, I guess one of the concerns is that there's now a, they're going to implant a, 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 a chip in you mm-hmm. that has all your medical information, all your vital statistics. Hmm. So when you go to the doctor, you just kind of hold your right arm out, mm-hmm. and they scan it, and they go, oh, yeah, you're one of us. And uh, Interesting. Yep. But I don't know that to be the case because I haven't seen the the article and yeah. you know page annotation. Yeah. Well, just get it in your forehead instead of your right hand if you. Oh. Maybe. No, don't don't do that. Uh, well, I'm going to read this anyway. Okay. Okay. This is I. I want more Ahmadinejad, not less. Okay. Okay. Five million should flee Tehran over earthquake fears. Ahmadinejad says this is in the UK Telegraph newspaper. At least 5 million Tehran residents should flee Iran's capital because it sits on several fault lines and is threatened by earthquakes, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said on Sunday. Uh, we cannot order people to evacuate the city, but provisions have to be made. At least 5 million should leave Tehran so it is less crowded and more manageable in case of an incident, the mayor news agency quoted him as saying. Mr. Ahmadinejad said the government could offer, quote, land, Loans at 4% interest and substantial subsidies, unquote, in the provinces to encourage Tehran residents to leave the sprawling capital. Tehran province has nearly 14 million inhabitants, 8 million of whom live in the city, which straddles several fault lines. Experts have warned that a strong quake in Tehran could kill hundreds of thousands of people. Mr. Ahmadinejad said that 67% of Iran's 74 million strong population lives in urban areas. We cannot predict when an earthquake will happen, but if anything happens to Tehran province's 13.8 million residents, how can we manage that, he asked. You know, he, he's an expert on traffic and flow highway engineer. Oh, really? So that's I, he why he some type of that. an engineer. I didn't yeah. know it was a traffic engineer. Yeah, Iran is prone to frequent quakes, many of which have been devastated. The worst in recent times hit the southern city of Bam in December 2003, killing 31,000 people. Bam! <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, thanks. I'm sure they appreciate that. Yep. About a quarter of the population and destroying its ancient mud-built citadel. So, he's wanting them to... I don't know how quickly he wants them to leave, but he's saying they need to get out of there. And what I wonder, if he's talking about that quickly, does he is he thinking that there's something else also that could happen in Tehran? Where yeah, he sort of gently sort of reminding them, yeah, might be like, a good idea not to be around here. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Unless you've got a bunker, like, yeah. you know... Y'all want Several to get out of here below the ground. unless you have a uh, bomb-proof. Yeah. 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 Of course, you know, uh, if something didn't happen between now and then, it would certainly be a likely thing at Gog Magog. There you go. That those earthquakes could cause additional mm-hmm. issues. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Canada's only bullion vault, only bullion bank gold vault is practically <coughs> empty. This is via Zero Hedge, who I just... They do some really great investigative reporting. Okay. Um, We've actually read a bunch of their stories before, or I have. Uh, Is that about landscaping or what? Zero Hedge? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of the concrete look. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're in trouble. 
Continuing on the trail of exposing what is rapidly becoming one of the largest frauds in commodity markets history is the most recent interview with Eric King by Eric King with Goddess Adrian Douglas, Harvey Organ, who recently testified before the CFTC hearing, and his son Lenny, in which the two discussed their visit to the only bullion vault bank in Canada, that of Scotia Makata, located at 40 King West Street, 40 King Street West in Toronto, and find uh, where they found the, the vault is practically empty. Uh, now remember, Adrian Douglas was trying to walk the Commodities and Future Trading Commission through uh, a market manipulation by one of the big banks, and he was calling them daily, daily saying, "Okay, this morning it's going to drop by 5,000, you know, ticks or whatever," and it did. And then the next day, he'd say, "Okay, well, next tomorrow, this morning, now they're going to backfill to put a short squeeze on, and it's going to rise a little bit." And it went on and on, and then three days after he gave he gave all that information and made public those uh, revelations, he was like run into in a car wreck, and uh, he still survives. But now he's saying that. Aren't you glad that we live by that adage of the Army Field Manual of Yeah, look unimportant. The enemy may be low on ammo. Well, you can't look much more unimportant than I do. Yeah. People like go. Well, he could be living in a low rent apartment, or he could be. Uh, Sleeping in the yeah. But, you know, people like you just mentioned there, they made the mistake of actually doing something important and impacted yeah. powerful people. Yeah, they thought like, good and evil accident. might be like something worth yeah. thinking about. Then you have a car accident. Yep. This is a relevant segue to a class action lawsuit filed again, uh, filed against Morgan Stanley, which was settled out of court, in which it was alleged that Morgan Stanley told clients it was selling, selling them precious metals that they would own in full and that the company would store, yet even despite charging storage fees was not in, uh, yet even despite charging storage fees was not an actual possession of the bullion. That's pretty, mm. that's pretty dirty pool right there. It appears that this kind of lack of physical holdings by all who claim to have gold in storage is pervasive, pervasive as the actual gold globally is held primarily in paper or electronic form. So, so where is it? It's still something physical. It has to be somewhere. According to this, they're saying no. So people have invented gold certificates just like fiat paper money. Yes, essentially. Um, Lenny Organ, who was the son to enter, uh, who was the person to enter the the vault of Scotia Makata says, what shocked me was how little silver and gold they actually had. Lenny, Lenny describes exactly how much or little, as the case may be, silver was available. Roughly 60,000 ounces. As for gold, they had 210 400 ounce bars, 4,000 maples, 500 eagles, which are both mm-hmm. small coins, one ounce coins, uh, 10 kilo bars, 10 one kilogram pieces of gold in, uh, in gold nugget form. Uh, which Adrian Douglas, Douglas, Douglas calculates as being $100 million wor- dollars worth, which is just one-tenth of what the Royal Mint of Canada sold in 2008, or over $1 billion worth of gold. As Oregon concludes, the game ends when people who own all these paper obligations say enough and take physical delivery, and that's when the mess will occur. Also note the... The interesting detour in what Stephen Spicer of the Central Fund of Canada said regarding his friend at a major bank who wanted access to his $15,000 ounces of silver and had to wait six to eight weeks for it to be flown in from Hong Kong. Hmm. So, um, yep. So that's sort of the sort of the thing going on there. That and plus, there's something weird going on too. I don't know if anybody has checked the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve. 
educational data for Fred uh, mm. that our 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 lending has went up by a hundred percent this month. This month. This month. Yeah. If you lending would, from Fed to our banks. Fed or to who? The Fed to we're not telling. Um. Uh, I was looking at a looking at a chart on some of their different loan things, and we basically loaned out four hundred billion dollars last month. We, you're talking about Federal Reserve. Yeah, when I they're say not we, we, I don't mean me and you and Pyro. Because they're not federal government, right? Yeah, I mean they're a separate, yeah, independent group. I, I makes mean their a gigantic money. octopus wrapped around the face of Congress. Yeah, uh, with their proboscis sucking the blood out of the mm-hmm. United States, well, otherwise a, known as the Federal Reserve. I got a question for you What's related that? to gold. How long does canned food last? It depends on what you can and how you can it. Okay, give me a real answer. What's a range of time? To okay, well, I mean, you can you can do it for a couple of weeks, or it'll last quite a long time. You know, rice and beans in a in a commercial can will last for years and years and years. Like you know, like canning, like mason jar canning, that oh. kind of pickled mm. stuff and that kind of. I think that'll last a couple of years too. A couple of years. If you do it really well. The reason I bring this up is that first of all, these people buy gold. If they don't have their hands on it. Is, is like not having it. Yes. And even if you have your hands on it, if you need to eat, it doesn't do you much good if you got to eat. Well, there's plenty of mineral content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, looks like to me you ought to be able to just hang on to non-perishables yourself that you know sure. you're using in the future and other stuff because all this other stuff seems to be like a big scam. Sure. Dried rice and beans will last almost forever. Mm-hmm. And you just need a safe place to keep it. Yep. Dry. Mm-hmm. Well, can I... Mention something real quick here in just a couple of minutes. We sure. Have. Can you do it in song form? Yeah, I'll do it in song form. No, as a sonnet or haiku. <laughs> um, over-the-counter paranormal drug used by 3.1 million Americans to get high. This is from the brainwaving.com website. Great. Uh, according to a recent report from the U.S.-based uh, SAMHSA's National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the cough suppressant dextromethorphan, DXM, is found in, in more than 140 over-the-counter cough and cold medications. In 2006, about 3.1 million persons aged 12 to 25 had ever used an over-the-counter cough and cold medication to get high, that is, used it non-medically. Nearly 1 million persons aged 12 to 25 had used an over-the-counter cough and cold medication to get high in the past year. Uh, uh, what isn't prop, uh, popularly known is that at high doses, the disassociative drug, DXM, causes subjective paranormal effects similar to those of ketamine, such as out-of-body experiences, near-death experience, a loss to the sense of causality, sense of presence, encounters with entities, and the occasional experience of extrasensory perception. And they cite their the studies here. Mm-hmm. Uh, these reports were also corroborated by a recent survey on paranormal experience with the psychoactive drugs uh, conducted with Dr. Marios Kittenis of the University of Edinburgh. Marios Kittenis? Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, David Luke says, uh, says, we found that several of our survey respondents acknowledge having experience of clairvoyance, psychokinesis, uh, mystical type experiences, and telepathy in particular. Several respondents have independently res- uh, reported using DXM with others for the explicit purpose of having group telepathic experiences, which they believe to be real and recurrent. Uh, and it says it's a legal drug at the present time with increasing numbers taking it for non-medical purposes. So i got to stop here, but uh, they're finding more. Here's, drug, you know, cough medication. I, I was just listening to the radio this morning, and they were interviewing a guy 
talking about taking hallucinogens to cure his depression. Uh, that's going to be a bigger story yeah, in the future. Fine. Somebody else who's big is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us here at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. That's the end of the line. All right, we're done. Enjoyed news with you. It was good. We got through a lot of stories. Got a few stories in today. I had more on the table. So did you. We'll be back with a new set next week with a great guest. And until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.